This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and with me as he is every week is the Klingon warrior himself, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you this week? Kapla! I am fine. I am sitting here drinking prune juice. Mmm, very good. Excellent. Kai, the podcaster, Bruce. I don't know. (laughs) Excellent. Well, as I'm sure you can tell, we're going to have a Klingon heavy episode when we get to our feature later. We will be talking about the original series Star Trek novel, a classic from 1984, The Final Reflection by John M. Ford. But before we get to our feature today, we have some news to get to. And first of all, of course, we have a couple of new comics that were released. We have Boldly Go number 15 to talk about, and we'll start with that one, I think. So this is a continuation of the Idic storyline we've gotten from the last few issues. And like I said, this is issue number uh, 15. Continuing that story. So first of all, Bruce, what did you think of this issue? It's interesting the way it starts off because... That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this being part three and we're seeing different universes converging. So we're seeing different enterprises, different crew members of the enterprise show up. You know, there's Kirk, there's the female Kirk, there's the mechanical Kirk, there's all these different Kirks. And now <laughs> we've got plant Kirk. Yeah, That's different, but interesting, too, because, yeah, I I was initially a little thrown off. I mean, we've got kind of a crew of Groots, really. Yes. But uh, uh, definitely odd. It had me questioning how, you know, life evolved and and what path that took, and especially seeing Spock on the bridge as well, and he is also a plant. I was wondering, is he just half plant-human, or are the Vulcans also plants? So I don't know. That started me down a rabbit hole that raised way too many questions that I didn't really want to think about. You know, was Sarek just a Vulcan and Amanda a plant woman or were they both plants or anyway, this is, yeah, it got a little crazy. 
You know, I like alternate realities, and typically when we think of alternate realities in Star Trek, it's similar to our universe, yet the circumstances are different. So things have played out differently. And in this in these last three issues, and there was, you know, the issue of the female versions and the male versions, opposite sex versions of the crew in uh, the ongoing comic. You know, now that we've gotten these three issues, we have all kinds of odd situations. So everybody's a plant or everybody's mechanical or, or everybody is uh, gas energy or something to that effect. <laughs> what was Scotty in this? <laughs> He's like... Um, he's a floating red orb. Yeah. And, and what does he say? Something along the lines of, uh, uh, am I only the gas? Am I the only gas based Starfleet officer here? And all I could think of was, well, you know, our Scotty's kind of gas based too, but only after he's eaten a haggis. But you know, (laughs) anyway, it was maybe too obvious a joke. (laughs) And I guess that's the format of comics is to be a little goofy i guess i mean because i feel like a, a lot of these issues we get a little bit of goofiness like i'll read an issue and i'm like okay this was kind of fun but i don't think i'd want to see this as a, an actual tv episode you know I, mm-hmm. it wouldn't play right because the way these are going it almost sounds as if you know you would pick up an issue and say oh there's an alternate universe where everybody is turtles or everyone is frogs or everybody are trees or you know what or everybody's an airplane I mean, it's just like they're going for everything you can possibly think of. But at the same time, I mean, it's fun. But again, I wouldn't want to see this as a movie or a TV series. Mm-hmm. I kind of, with in the case of a comic, I'm kind of appreciative of the fact that they take the risks and do something a little bit more visually interesting and different rather than play it safe. I think playing it really safe could, you know, make for maybe a more Star Trek story that we'd be more familiar with. But visually, this comic is really interesting and really cool. So I, I do kind of like the choices that are made here. I, the, my favorite part of this series, the Idic series, and I think it's a four-part or what, this is part three, uh, is the Spock character that is actually human-looking and has emotions. But he's still half mm-hmm. Vulcan. But as the Spock that we know, that is more prominently Vulcan in the way he acts and his looks, this Spock doesn't have the pointy ears and he acts more human and he's a very ticked off one too. (laughs) Yeah. I find myself always wanting to see more of that character and kind of his motivations and what makes him tick and his whole history with Kirk. Like it seems like I would love something exploring that universe and that character in particular as well. Definitely a very, in a more realistic way, a very different path for the character and one that could actually have happened. Yes. And what I find interesting in this is he is fighting Kirk because Kirk, he, he's fighting the Kirk of the Kelvin timeline because Mm -hmm. Kirk had done something to kill Spock's wife in the other timeline or whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Spock hates Kirk in his time. This Spock hates Kirk. And wait, what did they call him? He, they don't even call him Spock. He goes by a different name. Oh, um, uh, he, he has the last name Grayson, but I can't like his mother, but I can't remember yeah. his first name now. Yeah. Whatever name he goes by. And I, I can't recall off the top of my head, but in his universe, Kirk killed his wife, Yohora. And, mm-hmm. So now when the Spock meets the Spock meets the Kirk from the Kelvin timeline, 
he wants his revenge and wants to beat him up. And as the Spock is fighting our Kirk from the Kelvin timeline, he's really beating him up pretty bad until Mm -hmm. Kirk uses a Vulcan pinch on his shoulder. Which was an interesting choice because we know famously from the original series, uh, the prime universe Kirk never learned that skill, or at least the couple of times it came up, he hadn't, he didn't know how to do it because he famously says to Spock, you have to teach me how to do that someday. And Spock says, I have tried captain. (laughs) Yes. So now we know that the Kelvin timeline Kirk can do a nerve pinch. I don't know. Yeah. Like we have seen, I I will say, you know, there is precedent. We have seen non Vulcans do it before as well. So, you know, before, before everyone starts screaming non-canon out there, (laughs) we have seen that before. Yes, that is true. One thing I want to bring up with this, and usually I'm very full of praise with uh, the artwork in these comics, but (laughs) there are a few panels in this comic where, man, I am just not digging this particular style of artwork. And I mean, that's not to say that it's necessarily bad. I'm just, I'm really not digging the style. Did you notice in a lot of like the eyes on a lot of the characters in the close-ups just seem very strange and I can't quite, uh, there's, for example, uh, when Kirk and Spock, the Spock with the rounded ears from the other, uh, timeline are in front of Khan. There's a, there's a close-up on Spock when he talks about, uh, snapping Khan's neck from his universe and his eyes there are just like, I can't, they're pulling me in. They're bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I felt uh, more so on some close-ups. Well, maybe not even just on close-ups, but just certain panels is just very intense facial mm-hmm. expressions. Um, and then during the fight a couple times too, as well, with uh, Kirk and Spock, there's the one shot, uh, I, what page would that be? I guess they're not numbered, but the the one where it's close up on Kirk and he's wiping his bloody nose and his eyes look like the character from A Clockwork Orange. Like they have these very thick eyelashes coming yeah. out of them. And it just seems really bizarre, but I don't know. It's a stylistic choice that, you know, I'm sure has its place. But for me, it just really took me out of the story. Yeah, it didn't really bother me much. It didn't take me out of the story, but I did notice that it, the art just, like I said, seemed a little intense at times, mm-hmm. but uh, it didn't bother me at all. I actually, you know, kind of enjoyed it because it was a little different. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, So story-wise, though, I'm really digging this. And so we get, you know... All these various versions of the crew are in various locations. One group discovers they're actually on Risa, and that's the group that includes the previously mentioned gaseous uh, Scotty. <laughs> they discover that they're on Risa. Uh, there's one group on uh, Vulcan in a universe where Earth has been destroyed. And we kind of get hints that what's exactly behind all of this and it's kind of this disembodied voice starts talking to some of the Kirks and Kirk, our Kirk, the Kelvin timeline Kirk, uh, suspects that maybe it's Q because they've encountered Q before in a previous story. But this voice says the Q continuum is a candle 
we are the sun. So I don't know. Do you have any kind of speculation on who or what's behind all of this? Uh, I do think, I, I, I think it's Q, but I don't know why. Hmm. Like I, I, I can't, I, I don't even know why, even if it's not Q, why anybody is trying to pull the enterprise crew from different universes and mixing and matching them all with each other in different locations, even to the point that they're not necessarily being pulled off of the bridges of their ships. I mean, there's, he's pulling them from even Vulcan. He's pulling Ahura and Spock from the planet Vulcan into this scenario. So it's not like he's Mm -hmm. just going for the crew on the ship or whoever this person is or thing that's doing this. I wonder if it's like an uber powerful Star Trek fan who is playing with his action figures and putting things in really weird combinations and stuff. Oh, that's pretty You know, like you'd take your Picard action figure and team him up with Kirk and they'd go on an adventure when you're a kid or something like that. Right. Maybe it's something like that. He's just playing with his toys. Could be. Maybe. Yeah. It could be (laughs) Trelane, a child. I I was kind of wondering that as well. I don't know if they'll go there, but it, it was a thought that had occurred to me. I'm actually currently rewatching the original series, and I just recently watched The Squire of Gothos, so that was kind of fresh in my mind for that one. So could very well be. I think I sense that's what you were thinking, and that's why I said it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, for my part, I have to say, and, and this ends on an interesting note, we have... Uh, basically some enemies coming in and uh, well i mean we'll we'll spoil the comic the romulans are attacking right at the very end here with their narada technology that they've gotten from nero so this is a really cool cliffhanger to end on i'm really into this series i'm really enjoying this one i think this this issue in particular shows just a ton of imagination. There's a lot of really cool imagination going into this story. Well, and we've mentioned before that we seem to enjoy the it, the stories that span several issues because it gives it more time and you can explore the story more and lets it breathe. And I feel like that's the case in this too. We're really building on the story instead of trying to do it all in one issue and just kind of quickly get through it. Because a lot of yeah, times when absolutely. they do it in one issue, we're like, well, wait, why did this happen? And well, maybe because they were running out of time and they didn't they didn't have time to explain this. You know, sometimes it feels the, the one story issues can feel a bit choppy at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even the two issue ones. Yeah. They seem to wrap up just way too quickly. But this one, you know, each issue seems to be introducing new stuff, but it still doesn't feel like it's overwhelming. The story is given, you know, still lots of time to breathe and develop. And, you know, I, I'm really, I'm really not sure how they're going to wrap this up, but I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I guess we'll find out next month because I think it is four parts, right? I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. And then that fourth part will be the final issue of Boldly Go, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> I wish I weren't. There's, yeah, a lot of things seem to be wrapping up, at least uh, for now, lately. So, you know, it's just unfortunate. It's just a time out until something starts up again. I really hope so, because, yeah, I'm I'm really digging the Kelvin Timeline comics for sure. Me too. Well, jumping back to the Prime Timeline now, we have also a new issue of 
uh, John Byrne's comic series, New Visions. And this one's issue number 19. And it is called The Hunger. So this was an interesting issue. And of course, these are the New Vision. The New Vision series is the one that's based on the old photo, photo novels where they, John Byrne takes various pictures of the crew from various episodes and rearranges them and creates a whole new story. And in this one, we've got the Enterprise exploring uh, intergalactic space. So they've gone high above the plane of the Milky Way galaxy and they're exploring this area that's kind of on the edge of the galaxy. And uh, they encounter a new threat that seems to uh, basically threaten all life in the most populated part of the Milky Way galaxy eventually. So, Bruce, what did you think of this one? I'm usually impressed with how these photos turn out to be consistent frame to frame. That's the thing I'm most impressed with when I read these. Because I remember earlier issues, I'm like, oh, that looks so fake. Or, oh, you could tell that's from a different episode or whatever. And it's becoming less and less like that for me. Unless it's you take the character and you put them in a new environment. And then the environment looks very computer generated. And sometimes, you know, certain things look photoshopped. But for the most part, there's pages and pages of scenes on the bridge that all look like it really just jumped out of an old episode of the original series. And even those scenes on the bridge, I'm really noticing that he's taking more and more liberties and rearranging things. So the scenes on the bridge before used to be very much like, oh, that's just a still frame from the original series. But there's quite a few bridge shots in this episode where people are in different places than they were before and you get a shot of the whole bridge, you know, angles that you've never seen before. There's some really great, work being put into these. So it's almost, you would expect that because it looks better, he's taking fewer risks and trying to make it look more like the original series. But as this series goes on, it's like he's taking more and more risks and making, you know, decisions to make it look even more different, but he's getting a lot better at composing these images, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think he is. And and the stories are very good too. I mean, they feel mm-hmm. like stories that could be could have been pulled out of the original series. But sometimes I feel that it can be a bit distracting because of some I'm so busy kind of looking at the pictures <laughs> trying to figure out I wonder what episode that came from or I wonder if he combined these two together from different episodes. Like for example, there was for example, there were times where I noticed that Chekhov and Sulu are next to each other. And of course they're both wearing gold tunics. One Mm. shirt is a different shade than the others. You know, it's like one's a little more goldish than the other one. You're like, this probably came from two different episodes in two different locations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause famously there's the, the season three uniforms were of a different material and stuff. So probably looks a lot different. And then of course, probably under different lighting conditions. So you know, sometimes stuff like that, it's pretty obvious they're not actually next to each other, which is unfortunate. This story in particular, I have to say, is kind of one that uh, really pulled me into it. That, you know, throughout the course of the story, I found myself focusing less on that sort of stuff and more on the story because this is a really interesting story and it really pulled me in. 
I thought was interesting too, um, as it got further in, it started to get a little more weird <laughs> and mm. then it started to lose me a little. Uh, I don't know if it really, re- it came to, re- I don't feel like it resolved anything the way I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really don't understand what this moving planet really is and, and those creatures that were in it. I, I don't feel like that was really answered. Yeah, I feel like the setup and the the rising action and that sort of thing was way more interesting to me than the ultimate uh, resolution to the, the plot because that seemed a little strange to me. I don't know. It 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 wrapped up things i think a little bit too neatly the story you know the the resolution wasn't worth um what the setup was i think the setup was much stronger personally yeah i agree i think so too and out of these new vision comics i i struggle with the writing for checkoff <laughs> uh yeah i was wondering if this was going to come up the uh the thing with checkoff is i think a little bit goes a long way So in the novels, every once in a while, if there's a novel written where, you know, every so often one of Chekhov's words has that Russian different spelling, different lilt to it to remind you of his accent. I feel like that goes a long way. But when like every other word is, you know, you know, duh, or replacing all the V's with W's and the W's with V's on, you know, every single word and the only ting I can say for sure is just like, oh, okay, do we have to have ting instead of thing? Yeah. Like, you know, it's just a bit much at times for yeah, sure. Yeah, because there's times I'm like, wait, what is he saying again? And I have to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, it definitely borders on goofy, I think, a little bit, which, yeah, that's that's a little unfortunate for sure. So my favorite part, because since you mentioned goofy, my favorite part is when the security officer on the planet decides he wants to look at the dirt that's under the grass. Yeah, I didn't. Because <laughs> he's from a, a farm in Ohio, and boy, he used to like to go and look at what the dirt was under that grass. <laughs> That seemed a little weird to me. I mean, I grew up on a farm as well, and I wouldn't think to check out the dirt under <laughs> grass, I guess. I don't, that just seemed very strange well, to me. Well, it's because but... you didn't grow up on a farm in, in Ohio. That's the difference. Ohio That's farm true. boys yeah. like to look at the dirt in the grass. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then little perfect. creatures come out and attack you. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, and that's just Ohio as well, for sure. <laughs> Excellent. But yeah, no, like I, the art I think is uh top notch on this one. I think it looked really great. Um, the story, you know, for a great setup has a little bit of a weak resolution in my opinion. Um, but for the most part, I think this is kind of, you know, up there with the best of the new visions comics. Yeah. I was just going to say that too. It, it, it's one of the better ones. I think, I think they're getting, we're getting better ones as we go along. I think, you know, it started off okay, but it's gotten a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I'm just surprised how fast they're able to knock these things out too. Yeah, for sure. I feel like a lot of work's got to go into these, uh, especially when they look as good as this one does. Sometimes in some of the previous ones, I thought, oh, you could have spent a little bit more time on on that. But yeah. this one looks like there there was nothing really that jumped out at me as being an egregious error. There were, there were small little things here and there. 
that I think are kind of at this point unavoidable. But for the most part, like there's nothing that I was like, oh, that looks horrible, you know? Yeah. And uh, the thing about these also is they're a little longer than most of the IDW Star Trek comics. So this is like 40 pages of, Mm -hmm. of comic that you get. Uh, out of this one and also i wanted to mention real quick if you haven't read and i don't mean you dan i mean anybody who's listening hasn't read some of these new visions and is interested in reading some of them volume six came out and i don't remember which issues but there's a few of these issues in volume six that just came out yeah definitely so if you want to catch up on these that's probably a really great way to do that Excellent. Well, uh, one other thing that I wanted to bring up and we'd put here on uh, the outline uh, is regarding the upcoming schedule for books in 2018. Yes, I'm so excited. A new year, new books. Oh, boy. Well, this is obviously the elephant in the room. And we've we've touched on this a little bit in the past, but we haven't really sat down and talked about it. Bruce, what is going on with the schedule in 2018? Oh, you're asking me like I know. <laughs> oh, well, I do man, know that oh, we have, uh, we, we, as, the, as of this recording, which is the first week of January, there has been no announcement uh, from Simon & Schuster of any renewal with the agreement with CBS for new books going forward. Now, we do know that we have a Voyager book coming out and two Destiny books, not Destiny, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> We know that we've got a Voyager book coming out and two Discovery books coming out this year from Simon & Schuster. And we also have two Prometheus books coming out from Titan Books. So we do have five fiction novels coming out in 2018. Uh, Yeah. That's it. That's the schedule. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. So uh, the two Discovery novels, we have uh, Drastic Measures by Dayton Ward. And we've talked a little bit about that. That one's coming out February 6th. So uh, just a month from the recording date of this, pretty much. And uh, the second Discovery novel is by James Swallow. That one's Fear Itself. And that's coming out in June. So those are the two Discovery books. And then the Voyager book we have coming in March. So end of March, uh, March 27th is the official release date for that one. Now, the other Voyager novel that supposedly takes place after that, I don't know if if that will ever show up on the schedule. It might still be part of the old contract. I've heard, I've also heard that it's not, but that's uh, To Lose the Earth by Kirsten Beyer. Don't know if that's written. We know it's been outlined and all that sort of stuff, and there's no release date for that as of yet. Uh, so. yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I talked to Kirsten Beyer at uh, Star Trek Las Vegas about it, and she indicated it was going to be delayed into into early 2018. But yeah, since we still don't have a contract, I I, I don't know if we're going to see it or not. I'm going to say we are. I think so too, because it has been, I would, I would say that it would have to be under the old contract because it was, it was, I think, as far as I know, purchased via an outline and all that. So I think she's still under contract for that book. Now don't quote me on that. I just, I, I've seen it said somewhere. (laughs) So hopefully that's the case. Um, 
and hopefully we'll at least get that. And hopefully we'll also get a lot more when and if, and I think when, this contract is finalized and they can finally start contracting writers to do books and get those scheduled. So it looks like we're going to have a bit of a, a break for a while at least, but hopefully something soon after that. Oh, but we're not taking a break on literary tracks. We absolutely have plenty not. to read and we're still going to be cranking <laughs> out episodes and we've got some things planned uh, for the next few months. So, and beyond that. So we're, we're gearing up. We've got plenty to read out of the 800 whatever novels that are out there. We could cover it all. So I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm a little disappointed we're not getting a bunch of new novels or a new novel every month. But at the same time, I'm like, well, there's so much out there I haven't read that I want to read anyway. So this is a good time to catch up. But where I start to really feel bad about things is our authors. They're mm-hmm. not getting the work. And this can be exactly. a hardship to them. And that's the sad part to me about this is, uh, you know, they, they've got bills to pay and this is part of their job. And when you don't have work, you know, you try to get other work elsewhere, write other books or whatever. So that's, that's the one bad thing to me. No, it's, it's definitely too bad. Uh, but again, hopefully we'll see that turn around. Now we of course do also, as you mentioned, have the two Prometheus novels coming out, uh, in English, uh, from Titan books. And that's the root of all rage is the second of the trilogy. And that one's coming in May 29th. So end of May. And then uh, later in the year, I think uh, November, is that right? I I can't quite remember for book three of Prometheus. That one's coming towards the end of next year. So we do still have some new titles coming out and uh, we'll definitely be talking about those here on Literary Treks, as well as a ton of other stuff that we have planned. So yeah, don't worry. We're not going anywhere. This is just almost, you know, a blessing in disguise. We'll be able to get caught up a little bit, hopefully. So, you know, we won't quite uh, take as long to go to, you know, 2000 episodes or whatever it takes to talk about every Star Trek novel ever written. And of course, there's plenty of comics. the goal. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, on that note, what do you say we take some time and talk about one of those classic novels that we have the opportunity to get caught up on? We'll jump over to our feature and discuss The Final Reflection. Yes, let's do it. The Final Reflection. So this is a Star Trek novel that came out in 1984, I believe it was published. And it is listed by many Star Trek readers as a classic Uh, some people love it. Some people don't like it as much, but it definitely is one that sparks a lot of debate and a lot of discussion. And I'm really, really excited to be talking about this particular novel on today's episode. So first of all, Bruce, how did you read the final reflection? And was this your first time? Well, I read it in English and I read it with my eyes open. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, so I <laughs> you smug son of a. No. <laughs> I this is my first time reading it. I've never read it. Uh, one reason I don't think I ever read it is because, well, first of all, I wasn't reading Star Trek novels in 1984 when it came out, but I do remember seeing it in bookstores. <laughs> uh, the cover of it never looked interesting to me because it was like a Klingon and a Vulcan playing chess. I was like, 
okay, uh, that looks boring. Uh, so that was one reason. And then as time went on, I started to hear more things about it. I was like, oh, well, I should, you know, go back and read that someday. I need to go to a used bookstore and try to find it. Fast forward to now when we have eBooks and doing literary tracks, it was on the horizon to do it. And now I can just go and download it from Kindle. And that's what I did. And that's how I got hold of uh, this one. How about you? One thing that jumped out at me when you were talking just there is, yeah, when I was a kid, a Klingon and a Vulcan playing chess, boring. But now I'm like, that sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to be a fly on the wall in that game. And you kind of are in this book. But uh, yeah, no, this book, I read it a few years ago uh, when I moved to Korea to teach English and I bought one of these newfangled e-readers. And I thought, you know what, I can I can download some Star Trek novels. And one that I'd always heard a lot about was The Final Reflection. So I downloaded that and read it. I was kind of puzzled by it, but also really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really great book. And I dusted off the old e-reader and called up the old files and downloaded them because, you know, this was a new e-reader and I hadn't read it since then. So, But I still had it and I could download it. And uh, yeah, again, a really interesting read, read it again this time around and got even more out of it than I did then, which is kind of one of the first things I want to talk about is how much is really in this book and how much information and I think subtext the author packs into this story and how much that even after reading it the second time, I'm sure I must have missed while reading it. So there's so much there. There is, there's a whole lot there. And I'm glad you mentioned that you read it years ago. And and this is the second time you got more out of it because I felt like there, there is a lot. I don't want to say it's a real dense, like there's so much to it that it's hard to read through. Maybe for some people they'll feel that way, but I do feel like there's enough information there about the Klingons and the culture and what they're doing amongst the Federation and just the Federation in itself that there were times I went back and skimmed through a chapter just because I wanted to make sure I got it all. Yeah, there's, it's kind of difficult. And I, part of this might be the ebook that I read in particular too. It seemed to almost jump scenes without me realizing it had jumped to a different scene. And I think that's just the formatting of the ebook I had, but it certainly didn't help when trying to suss it all out because you know a lot of this stuff it the transitions are a little different it feels a little bit more literary than most star trek novels if that makes sense it does it does because i bought this off kindle as part of the uh, hand of calus omnibus i guess you would call this um Mm -hmm. it was a signature edition series which included this novel and the calus novel in one and I've never read the Kalis novel. And so I read the final reflection uh, for this episode and then started reading Kalis and got maybe five, six chapters into that. And this is the one thing I've often noticed about Star Trek novels from early in the publishing line and later. The writing styles do seem very different to me. And and it was it very much felt that way where when I got to the Kalis part of The Hand of Kalis that it just seemed to flow a little easier in the reading. Yeah, there's definitely a uh, a shift, I think, in, in writing styles for sure. And I did find that 
I at one point did start reading the original series novels kind of from the beginning and I kind of fell off of that and, and didn't finish that. But yeah, a lot of those early ones are a little difficult to read. Maybe not difficult. Maybe that's not the right word. But the the style is something you kind of have to get used to while you're reading it. And this one in particular, I found that to be the case. I always feel like with the old novels, they weren't written. And I'm not saying this one falls in the, the category, but some of the old Star Trek novels, and I know this for a fact, weren't necessarily written by people who were familiar with Star Trek, especially mm-hmm. in the Bantam publishing line. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't think when they were writing them in the early days, they were trying to make the novels feel like the movies or the series as you were reading it. And maybe they had more time to write them. And so they made them a little more dense where now I feel mm-hmm. that they flow. Most of the newer novels flow as if, you, you know, it feels like a TV show or it feels like the movie and it, it's it's flowing better. I, I don't know. It's It's very different. Yeah, that's definitely the case, I, I think, for sure. Well, in this novel, it's uh, very much about the Klingons and their society. And it's from the perspective for the mo- – there's, there's a framing story, basically, in which uh, Captain Kirk starts reading a book called The Final Reflection, which is told from the perspective of the Klingons. And, and it's ostensibly the book that we are reading here. This is the book that Kirk's reading in this book. And it's from the perspective of the Klingons, in particular, a Klingon captain named Kren. And we see a bit of his early life before he's a captain, but the main meat of the book comes when he's, you know, captaining a, a couple of Klingon ships in his career. Now, one thing that struck me about this is that the Klingons presented in this novel are truly alien. And Part of that makes this an even more difficult novel to read because they are a society that's very difficult to understand from our perspective. They have a very codified set of parameters by which they live their lives. And they're very different from the Klingons that we get later on, most uh, popularized, I'd say, mostly by Ronald D. Moore in The Next Generation and others going forward. These are not just the honorable Vikings of, of TNG. They're very different. So for anybody reading this book, you know, that's kind of a word of warning to go in first, kind of shed your expectations of what you think the Klingons are. And uh, I think you'll get a lot more out of this book. Yeah, it's, you have to put it in the time frame that it was written in 1984 and, and approach it that way, that this isn't the Klingons you're used to. I'm very curious though, when you're saying they are truly alien, is it that you feel that the Klingons in this book feel more alien than the Klingons that we get in the canon series, meaning from the next generation on? Yeah, I would say so. And I think a lot of that, like, for example, we see from the Klingons perspective, them uh, witnessing some, you know, things in the Federation and the way they respond to it and the way they think is completely, you know, they don't get it. Like they don't get, you know, the way humans think. And then the few times we see it from the other side too, the human, the Klingons will do something and the humans will completely misinterpret what the Klingon meant by that. Whereas, you know, in the next generation, yeah, we, we, and, and later we get Klingons who are, you know, warriors and they have codes of honor and that sort of thing. But at the same time, they're 
weirdly, and, and it's it's a very fine line, but they're oddly more relatable, I think, than the Klingons in this one. In this one, it's really, this book is really about the clash of cultures, two cultures coming together with very different ways of looking at the universe and what happens when those two cultures rub up against one another, if that makes sense. It does, and there's times where I would read a scene where I'd think that sounds very Klingon. And then there'd mm. be another scene where I'm like, that doesn't even, I don't even feel like I'm reading about Klingons, at least the Klingons that we know of, which I find very interesting. It, it's very compelling to me because it's giving us a different view of Klingons, but at the same time, I was trying to see if this would fit into the current continuity and the fact that maybe this is a different race of Klingons or a different sector of the Klingon empire. Because as we're watching discovery, you know, we're seeing, you know, all oh, these Klingons look different or these Klingons are different than these Klingons and whatever. And it's like, maybe there's just different parts of, of Klingon cultures and races throughout the empire that we've never seen before. And I almost felt like this could do that too but it's not written in that way it's like these are klingons and they're from a klingon home world and and this is the first that we've or not the first but these are the only klingons we've been dealing with and i didn't even feel at times that it felt like the klingons from the original series Mm -hmm. did it feel that way to you that the did they feels like the original series klingons or not it's kind of one of those things, and I, I feel kind of like you did, that there's kind of almost different aspects of the Klingon Empire, but maybe not quite in the same way. So they talk about in this book, they have the Imperial race, which I imagined as being the bony-headed Klingons. And then they talk about how they have, I think, what did they call them? Hybrids or mixes or something, something like yeah. that. Yeah, and... It felt like they were trying to say that like in the 60s original series Star Trek, it was it was those Klingons that, you know, had been bred maybe almost yeah. to be able to deal with the Federation and that sort of thing. Because it wasn't real clear. Right. Yeah. They. I think they I think he intentionally made it a little murky as well. And I was thinking when you mentioned on the other side of the page in quotes uh, that these Klingons didn't feel like they were even from the original series. I started thinking about when this book was written, which was 1984. So uh, we'd gotten the original series Klingons in the 60s, and then 1979, and Star Trek The Motion Picture comes out. And those Klingons, more than any other change the Klingons have gone through in the 50 years of Star Trek, that was the biggest change that we ever saw, was from the original series Klingons to those in the motion picture. And this book, like I said, calls them, I think that what I get is they call, calls those the imperial race Klingons. And if you watch just that scene in the motion picture, they feel very alien, very different from what we've seen before. And I feel like this book was kind of trying to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Trying to uh, mesh those two visions of the Klingons together a little bit and show that maybe we as the Federation don't know as much about the Klingons as we think we do. And that, you know, these, the Klingon society is much more layered and much deeper than we ever would have thought just from seeing the Klingons in the original series. Because 1984, I, I would assume all that they would have seen was the 
original series Klingons and then the motion picture Klingons. And I think uh, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock came out in 84. Yes. So while this book was written, I imagine those, you probably would never have even seen those ones yet. So, you know, it feels like we get the, those very alien looking weird Klingons in the motion picture. And I can picture the author sitting down and saying, wow, these Klingons are weird. This is nothing like nothing we've seen before. What can I do with that? And that that's kind of, I mean, I might be totally off on that, but that's kind of how the context that I think this book might have been written in. Yeah, and it was never clear to me the main characters of Klingons that we're dealing with, which ones have the ridges and which ones don't necessarily. There's one woman in here that she knows she's a half-breed, but she doesn't know if, it, if she's half Romulan or Vulcan or even human. Then she's like, well, I don't think it's human. Maybe Vulcan, maybe Romulan. Like she doesn't. She's not even sure. She just knows she's not a full Romulan. So I thought, well, she must be a smooth-headed <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. uh, Klingon in this. But the others, you know, I wasn't really entirely sure. Um, mm-hmm. But it it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I found my my impressions of them, the various characters, kind of shifting yeah. as. Uh, as it went. And I think I might be wrong, but Kren at one point during his, I think the chess game with Spock says to him, my parents are of two different species as well, or something like that. So I was like, Oh, okay. Kren's a, uh, smooth headed Klingon. And of course I read the ebook, so I didn't constantly have the book cover in my face, but I looked back at it and I was like, Oh, is that, I'm guessing that must be, that's supposed to be Kren on the cover. So I wonder if he's a smooth-headed Klingon as well. It could be. And, you know, covers aren't always right, though. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. <laughs> but, it could, yeah, it definitely could be. And, and there were times where it's mentioned they're wearing armor. And then there's another time where it's like, oh, he puts on a blue shirt. You know, and it's like, it does, like you said, it almost feels like a mesh between the two. And I wasn't exactly sure who's looking like what and, and whatever. But, again, it doesn't really matter. And... I could see where the original series Klingons that we saw on screen could fit into this. But Mm -hmm. um, I think this is probably more closely related to the way those Klingons were than the Klingons we get later in the different series were to the, Mm because we don't have the whole, you know, honor. I mean, I don't even think the word honor is even mentioned in this book anywhere. Yeah. I think it did mention it once but it was kind of notable in the fact that that was the only time i saw it mentioned i was kind of like oh honor interesting but yeah it was definitely it's definitely not a a tenet of klingon culture like it is later on and you know it really strikes me i really i i love these klingons i think it's a really interesting society i think it's really a, a really interesting foil to the federation because like the federation we learn that the Klingons are kind of trying to lure different races into their domain. And it really kind of almost is an anti-Federation, not anti as in like evil or anything like that, but you know, they're, they're kind of creating a hegemony themselves, you know, to counter the Federation. And I think it would have been really interesting to see that idea go forward. And these Klingons, be what we see in later series. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the Klingons of later seasons of later series. I think Ronald D. Moore and 
you know, actors like Michael Dorn and J.G. Hertzler and, and Robert O'Reilly did a great job bringing those Klingons to life. But uh, it would have been interesting to see this kind of society on screen. It would. And I also find it very interesting how some of this, I think, was used going into the, the other series, the Next Generation stuff. I think there were certain aspects of it. And one thing I want to talk about is the time of, you know, how time is represented in this novel compared to what we know in Star Trek. So there's it's a different chronology that we're dealing with here because, as you mentioned, you know, this is in 1984 when this was written. And the prologue, where we've seen Kirk and he's getting ready to read this book, it's mentioned that the prologue takes place 10 years after Pax Organia, the Organian Peace Treaty. And so that places this 2276, 2277, whatever, somewhere in that time frame. So it's after the motion picture, which makes sense since this novel was written sometimes after, sometime after that. So then it's mentioned that first contact happened 65 years earlier. So that would put in 2211. And it's with the USS Century and the IKV divisor, I guess, divisor, divisor, uh, divisor. divisor. So, you know, of course, we know in established canon with Star Trek Enterprise that in 2151 is when first first contact was with Klingons with the Enterprise. So anyway, long story short, I was thinking when I was reading this, okay, how can I fit this in. So I'm thinking this could be in some ways a different timeline. I don't want to say just all a different universe necessarily, but maybe this was the original timeline because even when I saw the pilot of Star Trek Enterprise, there was so much of the temporal Cold War that influenced that episode, which I felt led to the fact that that's why they found the Klingon running through the cornfield because of the Suliban <laughs> chasing him, you know, and I thought if there was no Suliban and no temporal Cold War, we may have not discovered Klingons at that time. That might not have been the original first contact. And maybe this novel represents a first contact that happened 60 years after that in the original timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found myself kind of doing the same thing. And, and the thing with this novel and also just side note, Klingons running through the cornfield was my favorite country song to come out of the 2150s. <laughs> but, but, you know, so much of this story, you kind of almost really have to set, like, it's, it's kind of like that way lies madness. Like if you try to slavishly put this in continuity, it's, it's not going to work. So it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you kind of squint and, and just make it work and, and, you know, like not an alternate timeline, like you say, but just, you know, allow your preconceptions of what continuity and canon is to kind of become hazy and misty. And I know that's almost like heresy when it comes to Star Trek fandom or fandoms in general, but you know, this book really, I think is worth taking a look at even though it doesn't necessarily fit in perfectly but here's the thing that you can get around is like you mentioned kirk is reading the final reflection it's written by a klingon right well yeah or it's a human author i think right that interviewed 
Dr. Samuel Tagore, I yeah, thought. I, yeah, I t- I'm not it's sure. It's a human author named John M. Ford. Yeah, <laughs> that's think. true. Yeah. But, you know, how much yeah. of that, you know, you could always argue how much of this novel that Kirk's reading is actual fact and how much of it is not. I mean, the fact that this. Well, ac- according to the Federation Office of whatever, it's completely fabricated and you shouldn't believe a word well, in it. It's, there you go. It's all made up. It's fake news. Hashtag fake news. Yeah. That's why Donald Trump won't read it, but <laughs> but I mean it it actually spurred me to order the Star Trek spaceflight chronology that was Ooh. released before this because you know I had read that the, the the dating system and stuff played off of that chronology and I found a used copy and and ordered it, it should be here on Monday so I'm I'm just curious to kind of delve in because I I like seeing a different take on Star Trek especially at a time when I wasn't reading this stuff and just seeing, you know, how Mm. things were thought of back then and how they were kind of forming the universe that now it's changed from what we've seen today. That's really cool. I'm, I'm excited that you're getting that book because I've seen that referred to so many times, the Star Trek spaceflight chronology, and I've never seen it myself. So that's that's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to hearing all about it. So cool. yeah, I would love to. We should maybe in. do an episode. What's on that? It. We should do an episode on that May- one. Maybe actually, we will. Right, we got plenty of time. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll check it out and see if it's even worth doing that. So, but the other thing is that also the Klingons their aging process here. They age really rapidly. So Kren, it's mentioned at one point he's nine years old, but he's an adult. And then mm-hmm. they mention about another Klingon who's 52 years of age. And they said, you know, oh, he's of the age, he's 52 years of age when Klingons should be dead. So I thought, okay, so, you know, the home planet that they're on, which, oh, wait, what is the name of that? I have it written down here somewhere, but it's not Kronos. It's Klingzahi, Klingzahia. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Klin something. It's not Kling. That's something else. We've got another name for the home world. But anyway, uh, so I figure, okay, this planet rotates around the sun at a slower pace, but it's suggested as if then later that, you know, they, they age very rapid. They have rapid aging, which I thought was funny because it's like, well, Alexander in the next generation had rapid aging. <laughs> he was a baby <laughs> one minute. Next thing you know it, he's like, you know, eight years old. And so that's a really good, that was a really good catch too. And I thought, I I mean, I, I mean, I seriously doubt the next generation was like, Hey, we'll, you know, from that, you know, John Ford novel, we'll do rapid aging claims. I don't think they did that just a coincidence, but I thought how that was really cool, how that can kind of fit together. Mm -hmm. And I remember like watching Star Trek and always thinking that Klingons didn't live that long. And I think it was just something like, oh, they're warriors. They hope to die in battle. Maybe they don't live that long. But then, of course, that Deep Space Nine episode comes along and they really wanted to have Kor, Kang and Koloth in it. So all of a sudden Klingons live, you know, a century and more and longer. Well, and it's, and I thought about that too, (laughs) because it was also mentioned that the Federation had found ways to allow people to, to live longer, have longer lifespans. And I think, well, maybe the Klingons at this point in the early 23rd century had shorter lifespans. And at some point they learned the technology from the Federation for longer lifespans later. Could very well be, (laughs) but yeah, no, it's interesting. And, um, I thought, 
like that age difference, the difference in lifespans between Klingons and humans comes up a couple of times in this novel. That's, you know, really interesting. Uh, the Federation ambassador to the Klingon homeworld, Dr. Tagore, for example, at one point tells Kren that he has, you know, I haven't held a weapon in 40 years in or, or something like that. And he automatically assumes that, oh, he's never held a weapon his entire life. But, you know, he was, you know, 65 at that point or something like that. So, you know, he had held a weapon in in a figurative way of speaking, which, you know, is a whole nother thing. But, you know, that kind of difference in culture is, again, just one more thing that, you know, makes the 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 bridge that they have to um, cross to get the Federation and the Klingons to kind of talk to each other on equal terms, you know, even just that much greater. Exactly. And and the time frame of this is interesting to me because it's our short it's like 10 years or so, 20 years after first contact between humans and Klingons and they mention that the top warp speed is 4.5 or 4.8 actually, mm-hmm. which I thought was funny because in Star Trek Enterprise the top warp speed is five. And that's also the time when they had first contact with Klingons There's something about first contact with Klingons and a near warp five warp engine. So mm-hmm. what I really liked about this novel, and this is one of the nitpicks I have on star Trek, but I know it's, you know, you've got to get places quickly. I love the fact that when Kren is given the mission to leave the Klingon homeworld to go to earth, because he has to retrieve an ambassador to bring back to the Klingon homeworld that it's going to, the mission's going to take him a little over two years, a little over a year to get mm-hmm. there and a little over a year to get back. Cause I'm thinking, you know, space is so vast that, you know, you shouldn't be able to go from one planet to the other within just a few hours. Yeah, no. I, and I really appreciate that as well. And it's one thing when you're reading it, that just makes you realize, and I mean, in retrospect, I really like Star Trek Enterprise. I think it turned into a really great series. But that first episode, three days to the Klingon homeworld and three days back, I was just like, oh, no. Like, blah. anyway, that's the inner nerd in me coming out and going, no, it's got to be more realistic. But. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, wait, if it takes three days from Earth to Kronos and Enterprise, why does it take over a year in this book to go that same distance at warp 4.8 versus warp five like it's not going to be that big of a difference between you know 0.2 warp places but uh so my head cannon i was trying to get through this episode without saying head cannon <laughs> but in my head cannon i thought well maybe when the klingons say 4.8 warp uh that's a different scale from what the federation is so a 4.8 for a klingon uh is 1.3 for the federation <laughs> it's like it's like dog years versus human right. years. It's the only problem is Klingon then they talk to versus. Ambassador Whitehead or whoever his name is, and he says that uh, you know, yep, you can do four point eight. Yep, we can do four point eight. Like they match, like they can both do the same warp speed. You mentioned Admiral White Tree. Um, oh, I call him Whitehead. It's White Tree. I, just, <laughs> I like that though. I knew it was White. It's an image. Um, I wanted to bring up, and this is just a totally random thing. I love that, uh, you know, when he's meeting with the Klingon captain, Kren, he's offering him different juices. He says, apple or orange, Waitree said. We've got pineapple and grape too. 
and prune, but the medical corps would have my ass for antimatter if I gave you that. I'm like, how prescient is that? That, you know, in the next generation, Worf would become a connoisseur of prune juice. And, you know, if only the Admiral had actually given Kren prune juice, then it might have led to, you know, decades of peace with the Federation. I know. I When I got to that part, I actually laughed out loud. I was like, how, how funny. Like, again, it's one of these things where I'm like, did the next generation writers get the prune juice idea from this book? Possibly. I don't know. <laughs> you know, this is one of those cases and we usually laugh that off, but this was a big enough book in the, the whole Star Trek thing and was famous even around that time that maybe <laughs> I could see somebody bringing that in. Yeah, and I'll get to it later. We have it in the show notes, but later there is something that I think this book did influence for sure in The Next Generation, but we'll get to that a little later. Ooh, I'm excited. Well, another thing that comes up in this is the idea of the games that Klingons play. And in particular, there's a there's a there's a game that has many different forms that, you know, it's kind of like chess. But, you know, there are many different forms of this that the Klingons play and it's very strategic and the masters of this game are very highly regarded. They're the thought admirals in in Klingon society. But a lot of Klingons also believe in the perpetual game. And that's the idea that this game is being played throughout your life. You know, it's this very strategic game where you have to get ahead and make moves to advance yourself and get ahead in life. And for example, there's a, there's a exchange that I really like between two Klingons. I do not acknowledge the existence of the perpetual game. Margon said without turning society is society. War is war. If they are games at all, surely they are not all the same game. I deny it. That is a favored tactic. Acton said. So even in not believing in the perpetual game, you're still playing the perpetual game. That's just one strategy to play it. But I thought that whole idea was an interesting one and it works really well in the context of this story. You know, each player in their life makes moves in order to advance. And it's a really interesting way to look at life. And it got me to thinking about, you know, our lives and not quite in the same regimented way that the Klingons do. But don't you feel like sometimes you're playing a game like there's career, family, you have to allocate points to various parts of your life. I think that's a really interesting philosophy to base your life on. Absolutely. Yes. I always feel that life is, is like a game. And sometimes I say it's a game and I know some people don't like that when I say it, sometimes they'll actually say it's not a game, you know, it's more serious than that. But <laughs> I also love to watch survivor and there's so much about survivor that I can relate to when it comes to different organizations that I'm part of, like, for example, at work, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, just, just to say right now, I mean, I work somewhere where our department was, you know, a fairly good size when I started some year, a few years ago. And now there's just four of us. And I feel like mm -hmm. every, somebody's always getting voted off the Island. <laughs> and, Especially when the group was bigger, I felt like there was a lot of play. 
that was almost like a game, you know, the politics involved or, you know, just, you know, I always heard this phrase perception is reality. So you want to do this just so you, you know, that they think that's what's going on, but even though it's not, but that's the perception. I mean, there's just so much play and going on and, and it really is like a game right now. I feel like, you know, we're near the final tribal council and there's just going to be three of us sitting there and the jury's <laughs> going to vote, but it really is. You got to find that final immunity idol, though, because you know, that'll that'll get you through it. <laughs> you know, that's funny. I should go just like pretend I'm digging into some like stuff and my boss will walk by and she'll be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm looking for the immunity idol. I'm trying to keep my job. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but like in this book, the, the game that they're playing and, and it's multi-level. I mean, it. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just, I, I really could see how you're just always surprised that of what's going to come in front of you or where you need to go. And when all of a sudden, unexpectedly you're being moved to the next level and you have to just deal with what's coming when, once you get there and you just never know, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like the, uh, the very, you know, regimented way they have of looking at it. So you know, yet they have the small games that they're playing and then, you know, society is just a bigger game, but it's still part of the same game. And then, you know, war with other societies is just, you know, an even higher level of that game. And one part where I think it comes in really cool into play is they, uh, Kren in particular, understands the games of other species as well. So, you know, humans play chess and Romulans play a different game. And during a battle with the Romulans, he's looking at the movement of their ships and he says, oh, you know, our our game has triangles and that's how we're picturing this. But that's not right. Their game has squares or hexes or something like that. So let's translate it to that. And, oh, he's going to move here next. So let's move here. And, you know, every aspect of what they do and uh, and how they operate is based on games and and matching your opponent. And the interesting thing of thinking of everything like a game is that other people and other, everyone around you are opponents, you know, rather than, you know, maybe partners or that sort of thing. So it, it kind of gives a little clue into the mindset of the Klingons, especially in their dealings with the Federation. And that's of course how the novel plays out as at the beginning, we see this actual game being played, but a game is being played with between the Klingons and the Federation throughout this book. You start to pick up on it that it really is, you know, the strategic game of chess and, and what is the right move and what's the right direction to go in. And do you start war or not fight? You know, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's all a chess game. And in the Klingon game, there's people who get injured and could possibly get killed. And that's the same thing that, can take place later in this book in the strategy in uh, not just what the Klingons do, but what the Federation does. Everybody's playing the game. And, you know, I also read that there was influence um, on discovery, which again, I think we'll talk a little bit more later, but on Star Trek discovery, I read somewhere that this game is represented somewhere in discovery or it will be or something. Do you recall? I'd heard that. Yeah. And I, I was kind of keeping an eye out for it, but I, I, 
if it has been on the show so far, I've missed it. And but. I've been doing a rewatch since I've read this and I've been looking for it and I haven't found it. But mm. one thing I've read is like when you see the uh, Takuvma ship or coal ship or whatever, that that it's multi-layered. And hmm. like the game. I never thought of that, yeah. So I don't know if that's really true that this rep- you know, influence the multi-level of the ship of seeing those different levels on the main bridge area. But that was apparently where that idea came from. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I, I had heard that also just in general, this novel really played a big influential role in discovery, which, you know, not coincidentally is maybe why we're talking about it right now. <laughs> it's absolutely why we're talking about it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, so we're talking about, you know, the games that they're playing and the strategies. And interestingly enough, we learn that in the course of this book, that it's not just the Klingons who are strategizing on this level, but it turns out if this book is to be believed, certain people or one particular someone in Starfleet is also playing a very strategic game with the Klingons here. Yeah, we have, uh, when Kren is on Earth, it's really interesting how he's always being pulled in different meetings with the Federation and dealing with different planets and worlds. And at one point, he's requested a meeting from the citizen, Maxwell Grandison, uh, in Atlanta, which is where I live. That's why I remembered that. But uh, (laughs) what happens is, he's part of a movement that does not want humans to expand really beyond the stars that earth is where humans should be. And we should just stay here. We shouldn't be out Mm -hmm. exploring other worlds and, and trying to repopulate places. And he even says to Kren, you know, don't worry about us, you know, at least, some of us do not want to take over your territory. So you shouldn't have to go to war with us. You shouldn't have to fight us because I'm all for trying to keep us here. There's no reason for us to go there. There's, we can live here on earth. And if there's issues here on the planet from an environmental standpoint, those are things that we can fix and create. And we, and you know, overpopulation, we can, we can manage, we can do things about that. We don't have to go elsewhere. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's it's kind of an idea that's come up a few times in Star Trek. So I, th- I thought of Terra Prime, for example, during this, you know, the very much, you know, keep Earth human and keep us here kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I like also that this takes place during a period of Starfleet history where it's presumed there's still money and there's still economics and that sort of thing. And this man in particular is one of the very well-to-dos of society, it seems. Uh, because, you know, the idea that there is no money in the future, I think the first time that's ever brought up is Star Trek Four, where, um, you know, Jillian Taylor says to Kirk, don't tell me you don't have money in the future. Well, we don't. <laughs> but, you know, in the original series, they talk about, there's one line in particular where Kirk's like, uh, do you know how much money... Starfleet's invested in our training and Spock starts to rattle off a number and Kirk's like, nah, forget it. <laughs> so, you know, economics and that sort of thing still exists at this time. So it's interesting to see 
that in the Star Trek universe. It's not something that we see very often. And, and this, this character really fascinated me. Yeah, he did uh, for me too. And, and just the idea, like you were saying, Terra Prime, that whole thing just really uh, is an interesting thing because you would think in the Star Trek universe and everything we've read about Star Trek, we as humans want to explore and learn about ourselves and go elsewhere. So it's very anti-Star Trek to think of somebody who says, no, we just need to stay here. We don't need to go out there. And uh, mm-hmm. But then we have the opposite because then we have someone in Starfleet, we have this admiral that wants to start a war with the Klingons because if we have war with Klingons, then the Federation becomes stronger because everybody will want, other planets will want to be members and continue being members or have new members join to have a united front against the Klingons. So he's behind a movement that's trying to stage a war with Klingons and possibly even working with Klingons on their end to make sure, you know, there's this corruption going on between the two groups to make sure that, Hey, let's, let's set up something that's going to spark a war. And there's so Mm -hmm. much information in here that talks about the sacrifice and that lives are worth killing. It's almost like, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the few. It's like saying, you know, the needs of the Federation outweigh the few lives that have to be sacrificed to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this character is a really interesting one as well. You know, very much a war hawk and, you know, acting behind the scenes to create this war. And they talk about how the Klingons, you know, very strategically, how they, you know, pay the Orions to, you know, raid planets so that they, you know, look to the Klingons for protection. But this admiral in Starfleet is doing exactly the same thing by uh, provoking Klingons into attacking. And then, you know, and even, I think it's implied faking Klingon attacks to make people want the Federation to come in and, and, you know, protect them. So it, it, it's interesting. They're playing, they're doing exactly the same thing. And, you know, the Klingons, you know, these dastardly, uh, you know, horrible villains, you know, how could they do this thing? Well, the Federation, at least one aspect of the Federation is doing exactly the same thing, which is really interesting and, you know, pretty antithetical to what we know of Starfleet, even though we have had Starfleet villains in the past quite a bit, so... There's always going to be those bad apples, I guess. And I guess we're in spoiler territory, but I don't really feel like there's many spoilers to this, uh, like any big shocking mm-hmm. reveals necessarily. So I'm I'm just going to call it out now in case somebody's like, well, I want to stop here because I want to read the rest without knowing more. And then come back and listen to us later after you read it. But <laughs> then there's both of these characters that we're talking about are later, uh, we find out, die we know one for sure was murdered the other it's implied possibly murdered in the elevator which is funny because he fell out of the elevator at the atlanta regency which is the hyatt regency in atlanta where dragon con takes place it's one of the hotels yeah so like wow a klingon died at dragon con but (laughs) but uh i wasn't really clear and i was hoping you can help me out on this who do we know who murdered them? Are we? I, it was never directly said, but it was. It's kind of hinted at, but I'm not really 
sure. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure it's on. I didn't highlight this part, so I can't remember his name. Um, but it was the the Klingon Marine. Okay, that's what one I was of wondering. Who was frozen? And yeah, there's. It's kind of one of those things where they um, they kind of dance around the issue, and you as the reader are to imply that that's what they're talking about. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, Doc the Doctor Tagore talks about. Uh, he me- mentions like, oh, I saw, you know, how Klingons kill on this this one time. And he's like, oh, you you know that technique, do you? Yeah, I do. Oh, interesting. You know, so it's implied that this this death that the Admiral has where his spine is severed or something very quickly and without him realizing, I guess he's asleep and just dies in bed that this is maybe a technique that's known to Klingons or something like that. So there's all these little hints that I think we're supposed to get that, yeah, the Klingons engineered all of this very precisely, but they never come right out and say. Yeah, and that's where I was leaning. And by the way, the Marines, uh, the Klingon Marine is Zarn. Right. Thank you. I knew it was a Z, but, or sorry, a Z, but I couldn't remember. Yeah, and I... (laughs) That's what I thought, but at the same time, I was like, well, I don't really know how he was able to really sneak around and do those things, especially on the train where the the Admiral was, and I, there was just, I was like, wait, I, and, and he, his memory is short-lived because he was frozen and he doesn't remember things, and I was just like a little confused. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of the novel, things were starting to get a little more confusing for me. I was thinking yeah. I was getting it, but it wasn't real clear. Yeah, and they kind of set that up with uh, revealing that Klingon transporters are silent. So I think he beamed in and did his thing and then beamed out. And because it's one of those things we're so used to, like loud, whiny transporters and on Star Trek. I had a really hard time picturing that, oddly enough, like just somebody beaming in with no noise. My brain, as I'm reading, kept making noise and I'm like, oh, stop it. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I, I think I think it's implied he snuck in and, and did that and beamed away kind of thing. And uh, it's interesting. You talk about the um, just as a little side note, the the freezing process and how damaging it is. And he doesn't have his memories and that sort of thing. These Klingons are really interesting in that they have very little re- regard for their long term health and safety, I think. So one of the reasons their transporters work so silently is they don't have these redundant backups that Federation transporters do. And it's heavily implied that repeated transporter use is, you know, genetically damaging and that sort of thing. Like the one Klingon comes out of the transporter and the other guy's like, hmm, I don't think he had those white hairs before. Interesting. <laughs> and they start getting headaches and that sort of thing. So. There was an interesting aspect of Klingon society that I think actually lines up very well with what we learn of Klingons later in later series as well. Yeah, and the more we're talking about this, and again, I I don't feel like everything needs to fit together, but I keep thinking how much of this book uh, has some influence on what we've seen in canon and how much of it doesn't fit in, especially like I was saying, like the timeline of it. But it's almost like, you know, if it, if the book was written in universe as being a piece of fiction, 
but everybody reads it as if like, well, it's fiction because yeah, we don't know. We know that first contact was earlier than this and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's, it's just all fiction, but everybody's freaking out about it because well, there must be some truth in this, you know, it's presented mm-hmm. as if like, oh yeah, it's fiction. Wink, wink. Because we wrote it this way without directly saying things. We're kind of hiding it within fiction. Like none of these characters are real and they're not necessarily based on anyone, but maybe mm-hmm. they are. <laughs> yeah. Like I wonder about, for example, the Starfleet Admiral who's engineering all this stuff. Like, was he an actual historical right. figure? And if so, this is a very damning right. piece of literature. Or have the names you know, been things... changed to pr- protect the innocent? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But at the same time, you know, like people will know who the Starfleet Admiral at that time who hosted the Babel Conference and then died under mysterious circumstances later was, you know. But if this novel is close to historically what happened, it reveals, I think, way too much. (laughs) Like I think, you know, a, a novel revealing who it was who killed some high ranking Starfleet Admiral and reveals that that admiral was, you know, conspiring to start a war kind of thing. Like, wow, this is pretty incendiary stuff. And I really wonder what, you know, we, we get a little bit of it on the enterprise. They talk about like people like, oh, wow, have you read this book? You should read this book. And the Federation Bureau of, of information or whatever saying like, ah, nope, it's not true. It's just a work of fiction. Don't believe anything you read (laughs) in there. (laughs) <laughs> well, and I read on, I think it was Memory Alpha, that uh, Kirk makes reference to this book in the novel Strangers from the Sky, which I have read years and years ago. And of course, I hadn't read this book at the time, so I didn't make that connection. Yeah. But it said that in that book, he makes reference to this. After reading this book, he's, he had nightmares or something. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and Strangers from the Sky is one that I read a long time ago as a yeah. kid. And I haven't read since. So it'd be interesting to, to take a look at that one again and, and make those connections. Put it on the list. <laughs> I'll put it on the list. <laughs> Excellent. And, and also just that idea of a novel within the novel. I, I really have always liked that as a literary device, you know, and we get that in Shakespeare. We get the play within the play in Hamlet, for example, the plays, the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king and I, I've always liked that idea of a story within a story. And it's not something that Star Trek has done very often, with, with a couple exceptions, this being one of the big notable ones. But uh, I, I just, I've always really liked that idea. Yeah, I do too. I, I really do. And uh, right now, in a lot of the Star Wars novels, they keep doing kind of stuff like that because they're trying to avoid stepping on canon. So it's getting a little be a bit too much there but every once in a while it's nice (laughs) so um uh, you know one of the things i wanted to talk about is what we said earlier about the influence that this has on discovery so we've we've heard from the creators and the writers of star trek discovery that they refer to the final reflection as an influence on what they are doing with the klingons in the series and kenneth mitchell has also admitted to reading this novel to help him in his portrayal of Cole, which I thought was really interesting. So I, I loved, I love hearing the Star Trek actor read a Star Trek novel. I love it. I just love it. That always, yeah, <laughs> makes me really excited because 
it's, you know, we, we shouldn't need this sort of thing, but at the same time, it gives it legitimacy. It's like, see, see, people read the novels. It's important. That's right. <laughs> it's like if next time I see Kenneth Mitchell somewhere, I'm going to like, hey, let's talk about that novel together. Actually, we should have had him totally. on. Oh, you know what? I'm going to try to do that sometime. We'll see. Oh, you know what? I, I think I could be wrong, but he's at Vegas this year. Is he? I know he was last well, year. I think he is this year. I think they announced. I know Mary Chifo okay. is. And I think they announced he him as a guest is, yeah. as, he was as sitting, well. He sat directly behind me when I went to the premiere in uh, Hollywood. And had I known then, oh, I would have cool. turned around. Hey, you want to do literary tracks? <laughs> yeah, that would be very cool. We'll have to try and corner him. Yeah, he'll things. be like, I don't remember that <laughs> book anymore. But anyway, um, <laughs> so were there things... <laughs> I mean, that was one of the things I was interested in reading this book is to see, you know, ooh, am I going to pick up things I saw in Discovery or that influenced Discovery? And one of the things we mentioned about is apparently we might see the game in Discovery. I said about the multi-layers on the, on the ship. Um, is there anything that you picked up in there that you thought influenced Discovery or even the other series? Well, I think the uh, the noble houses for sure was something that uh, really, you know, it's it's an idea we've seen in other Star Treks as well, which I think actually I would say probably TNG got from this. See, book that's what well. I was referring to earlier in the show. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I, I've I've always kind of thought since reading this book, I was like, oh, I bet you that's where they got the idea from. But they really do take that to the nth degree in Discovery, and I it really feels like a much closer adaptation of that idea in the series. That to me was. The big one. And of course, you mentioned here and Chris mentioned on his on, on his notes from the edge, the Black Fleet as well. And that's something when I watched the pilot for Discovery and they mentioned the Black Fleet. I was like, I've heard that somewhere before and I can't quite remember where. And, and yeah, it's it's from this book. They talk about the Klingon afterlife where they take command of a ship of the Black Fleet and, you know, basically wage perpetual war, which is, you know, the Klingons' idea of paradise, of course. Yeah. It, so the houses, it really jumped out to me because there was a reference early on the book about, I, I can't remember exactly how it was stated, but I, I think they said it was the 24th house or the house of 24. I just remember. Oh, nice. I yeah, that. it was 24. I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, in Star Trek Discovery, they talk about the 24 houses. And I guarantee you that came from this. Now, this wasn't saying oh, yeah. that there's 24 houses. It was just referring to one of the houses as being the 24th. And I just thought that was mm -hmm. really cool. That's neat. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What would what would be the odds of that not being directly? I, I, yeah. I would say that's probably definitely directly correlated to that for sure and i so let me ask you this the the portrayal of the klingons in this and we we're saying they're different from the klingons we've seen in next post you know in next generation and, and after would you say that the klingons you're seeing in discovery feel a little more closer to what we're seeing in the final reflection i would almost wonder if that was the case i think this novel for the first time while reading it, uh, while reading a novel, I started to try and use the discovery Klingons as a template to picture them a little bit. And, you know, for the most part, I, I just kind of reverted back to the motion picture style Klingons, but there were a couple times where I, I tried playing around with picturing them 
as the Discovery Klingons. And there's something about the regimented idea of the society and, you know, we, we go inside the Kren's adopted family's home, for example, and I picture that as being very ornate, like the Klingon chip on Discovery and that sort of thing. So little things like that, I, I feel like the Discovery Klingons almost kind of bridge the the two a little bit because there's still the the, you know, very strong brutish, brutish, I should say, not brutish, but brutish idea of the Klingons that we get later in the next generation, especially with Cole. But at the same time, there's that, you know, just very alien feel to them where they don't think like we do and their ideas are very different from what, you know, the Federation's ideas are as far as how to relate to one and one another. And the other thing I was thinking of is um, the idea that Laurel, I think, is very much playing the perpetual game. Go. Like she is very strategic and also Cole, I would say as well with, you know, the, the little bit of deception that he weaves and that sort of thing. Um, we don't think of the Klingons in the next generation as being very uh, cunning or deceptive. They're very honorable and upfront with the exception of maybe some villains like the Duras sisters and things like that. But for the most part, they don't, they don't deceive people and they don't, you know, do these, you know, calculated manipulative things. But the Klingons in Discovery very much do, just like the Klingons in the original series. So I feel like it's almost bridging the gap a little bit there. I agree with you. It's, it feels very much that the Klingons in Discovery are playing, quote, the game, more so than the mm -hmm. Klingons that we've seen in the other series. I like that you called out Laurel, because I definitely see her fitting into this book in that whole game scenario. I can see her work mm -hmm. in that. And I think that probably was some influence on discovery. Um, just that more cunning strategic playing the way these Klingons work. It's like, it is like a blend between the two that we're seeing on discovery, a blend from maybe what we're, we're getting in this novel and a blend of what we're getting from the past TV series. And it's kind of, Mm -hmm. blending those two aspects together into these new Klingons that we're seeing in Discovery. What I also found that contradicts what we've seen in Discovery and the other series is this book mentions that Klingons find it odd that we do funerals and that we try to remember mm -hmm. the dead or whatever. They just act like, you know, once a Klingon's, you know, killed, you walk away from it. You know, that. And when, of course, the very first episode of Discovery, we see them having basically a funeral and honoring their dead, which this book says that they don't do. Which is really interesting. And it, it actually didn't occur to me till I was much later in the book, because when I read that, I was like, just sorry, just as a, a side note, I was like, oh, yeah, they established that about Klingons. I remember when they talked about that on Star Trek The Next Generation. Then I realized, wait a minute. This book was written years before The Next Generation came out. So that's yet another thing that I think the creators of The Next Generation took from this book. Because in the first season episode, uh, Heart of Glory, the Klingon says the body is just a shell. What you do with it now doesn't that's matter. Right. And I was like, oh my God, that's from this book. So, you know, this 
this book has influenced many television series. But yeah, as to Discovery during the funerary rites and, and the their sarcoph- sarcophagus, that is definitely something that we've never seen before and does contradict a lot of what we see in this book for sure. But the other thing is when you see a certain society or, or, or a certain race like the Klingons, you can't assume that all Klingons do the same things and believe the same things. Just like humans don't, you know, I mean, you can, Mm -hmm. you could be an alien from another planet and come to earth and talk to one human that says, Oh yeah. You know, I don't, we don't believe in a God. Well, cause they're talking maybe for themselves. And then you meet another human and say, Oh no, we believe in God. And then aliens can go back. Okay. First I'm told they don't believe in God. Then I'm told they do believe in God. (laughs) You know, like there's kind of things that it's like, you know, they don't, You know, one one group of Klingons, you know, says, we do funerals. The other group of Klingons says, no, we don't. You know, they're just talking about themselves, you know. So sometimes I give, I think those things, when I when when things contradict one another, I'm like, well, it, one way doesn't represent a whole society. Yeah, and I tend to agree. And even actually watching Discovery, uh, you know, Takuvma and his group, they really, you know, believe in that sarcophagus thing and and honoring the dead. But later on, when Cole has command of the ship, he's just dumping the bodies in that room. You know, he's not going through all that stuff. And I mean, the show kind of implies that, you know, that's because he doesn't care about them in particular. And, and, you know, he's a dishonorable thug, I guess. But, uh, you know, at the same time, he might just be of the Klingon persuasion that doesn't believe in right. that sort of thing. And the body is just an empty shell. And once it's dead, it's dead and whatever. So I always thought that that was a little bit of a nod to that to say like, oh, no, no, no. Some Klingons believe that. Some Klingons believe that. So that could very well be. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I wanted to point out real quick, and it doesn't really have to do anything with Discovery, is there is one scene that uh, does involve Sarek and Amanda and a young Spock and yes. the young Spock in my mind, I was picturing the young, the young Spock that we see in Star Trek 09. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. That was uh that was actually a really great scene. And, and again, I think it's the scene they're, they're portraying on the front cover there. Uh, it, it's a really great little scene. And I, I even love Amanda's appearance in it, you know, freaking out that her son's, you know, conversing with a Klingon, but they're really just playing chess. You know, it's, it's really funny scene. I really like it. It is a funny scene. And then the other thing about the book is Klingon words are used throughout just kind of random Mm -hmm. things where it's like, wait, what are they? It's just, you know, a certain noun in a, a sentence all of a sudden it's just used as a Klingon word because I guess there isn't like a proper translation to English for that or, I forget there was an explanation at the book why early on in the book, there was an explanation why uh, some Klingon words weren't translated. Which uh, I I thought worked really well. Um, You know, we've reviewed books where I don't think that works well. I think one of the Romulan war books where it seems like every third word that the Romulans say is some Romulan word that makes (laughs) that we don't understand. And it just got to be like way too much. But in this book, I feel like it works really well. Like it just, it's just a sprinkling, just enough to kind of remind you, hey, these guys aren't human. You know, they're, they're not thinking in the same terms we are. You know, there's the, when they refer to the perpetual game, for example, they, they introduce it at the beginning, 
But then like throughout the rest of the book, they use the Klingon term for it. And it just, it works because you, you've now associated that and, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take away from it. And I think adds just a little bit to it. Yep. I agree. So, I, I mean, overall, um, I'm just curious, Dan, what do you think about this book? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I don't want to turn this into just gushing about a book, but, uh, when I read this, um, ages ago and it was one of the first books or at least the first grouping of books that I reviewed on my website, uh, Treklet reviews when I first started reviewing Star Trek novels and I gave it five out of five then and coming back to it now and rereading it, I wish I'd given it a lower score because now I want to give it a five out of five because I enjoyed it more than Ah. I did then, but I can't like it just... I feel like rereading this, I got more out of it than I did the first time. And I feel like if I leave it for a couple of years and come back to it again, I'll get even more out of it. Because like I said earlier in the show, there's so much in this book that I think probably just went right over my head and I didn't catch because there's so many little callbacks and little interesting bits like that bit I read about the perpetual game, just that little bit of humor. We said, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely a strategy. There's so many little things like that, that I didn't catch before or that are callbacks to something that happened 10 chapters earlier that I hadn't picked up on. And uh, yeah, I would definitely have to give this, I think five and a half out of five uh, silent Klingons beaming in. (laughs) Oh, that sounds bad. Actually half a Klingon beaming in is probably bad. Let's say six out of five. (laughs) Wow. I don't think we've ever had a six out of five on anything before. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm only saying that because I want to rate it higher than I did last time. And I gave it five out of five. So I well, maybe yeah. the first time you give it five out of five, but today we're going to do a scale of 10 and you can do a 10 out of 10. I don't know. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I guess that doesn't really make any difference. I think Amy, if she were here would chastise you on the math <laughs> for that, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So I never read it before. I agree with you because even though I haven't read the book before, I think I would have enjoyed it more the second time, meaning now, because I think if I had read this years ago, I think I would have enjoyed it, but I think I would have enjoyed it more now because one of the things I found interesting in the book is knowing where it has influenced, not just on Discovery, but maybe on other Mm -hmm. series and other books and such. And so just going through and picking things out, going like, oh, I bet that's where they got this from, you know, that Deep Space Nine episode or, or from Enterprise or Next Generation, whatever, you know? And it's like, how much of this was influencing what was developed later in the Klingon culture in the TV series and the movies and other books and comics? And, and, and it was just like going through that and just finding those things and then just finding those things that were so different that hasn't been carried forward with and like Mm -hmm. i said and then sparked my interest to get the the space flight chronology and and it's like i almost want to dive deeper into the older star trek that i had before so i i enjoyed it i thought it was an interesting story uh i know one host here at trek fm is currently reading it and is struggling to get through it so it's not for everybody (laughs) But I really enjoyed it, and uh, I would give this all 24 houses. Ooh, that is a very good rating. 
Even the House of Mokai, though? Man, I don't know. <laughs> They're kind of duplicitous. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> so I, you know, I think we really obviously enjoyed this book. I mean, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Star Trek novel, but a lot of times if I rate a novel very high, it's because I see myself rereading it. And I definitely see myself mm-hmm. maybe after a couple of seasons of discovery, if it gets deeper into the Klingon lore, going back and saying, Hey, wow, that's something that I didn't pick up the first time. Cause they hadn't done on discovery, but that obviously came from the novel or as I'm now watching discovery, I'll see stuff. Oop, that came from the novel. I remember that scene, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Th- this novel I've, I've had to over the years train myself to repeat the words one of quite a bit because I pull out the word favorite a lot. So I've really had to train myself to say this is one of my favorite Star Trek novels. And it, this truly is one of my favorites. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the absolute top for me. That's kind of a hard thing to pick, but it's always really been up there. And rereading it this time, I have to admit I was a little bit worried that I wouldn't like it as much. But like I said, I got so much more out of it this time. I enjoyed it even more than I did before. So, you know, Klingons, whatever form they take, Star Trek is really good at making them interesting. And John M. Ford's Klingons, I think, are incredibly interesting. So very cool stuff. Yeah, I'm a little depressed right now because I just Googled John M. Ford and saw that he passed away in 2006 at the age of 49. Yeah. Oh, I'd forgotten that. He's very, very young. And he's an incredibly prolific author, even outside of Star Trek. He's written a lot of really interesting, really highly regarded books. Um, he did write one more Star Trek novel as well, uh, How Much for Just the Planet, which I have to ask, have you read I that I did one? a long time ago. <laughs> that is, if you think The Final Reflection is a different novel, that one is very different. Yes. And uh Maybe someday we'll bring that on the show because I I bet you there are very differing opinions on that one throughout Star Trek fandom. So I don't even know why I read it, but that was an early one that I read. I think I think someone I think I heard people talking that it was really good. And I was like, I, again, it was the cover I was looking at. And I'm like, it's got a guy with like a bow tie <laughs> on it. And like I was like, it doesn't even look. And believe me, the cover actually fits the book. <laughs> it really, really does. <laughs> we, we should do that soon now that we've read this one. Because then they, re- yeah, they republished these at one point, and this was Worlds Apart Part 1, and that w- or Book 1, and that was Worlds Apart Book 2. Right, yeah. Yeah, we should definitely add that to the list. Well, it's been fun talking about really good novels with really weird covers today, but that's not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Yeah, it's, it, Data's role is really interesting. And actually, one of the things I really like about this episode is the humor in it. There's some really funny stuff, like when when Data is basically the, the judge in this contract dispute things happen like ardra makes picard disappear and he and he says the advocate will refrain from making her opponent disappear which is hilarious and not the kind of thing you usually see in in courtroom dramas like this so the edge a star trek discovery podcast 
See, I, I would love that. I would love to have a scene where Voke and Tyler meet. Like, and I would, I would be just fine with that. I don't, I don't need this to be the the thing. And honestly, like when I watched Choose Your Pain the first time, I didn't. I what I watched the episode. I didn't. I didn't think for a second he would have been Voke. I didn't think of that at all. Mm-hmm. Warp five. And he he like scratches his nose under his suit. It's like, yeah, that doesn't look like that would help you from anything, you know, except for the rain. You keep rain off of you or something. Well, you also just look at this side of paradise, right, for the original series. Anytime any of our major characters get like sprayed in the face with sprayed? something, it doesn't turn out <laughs> right. well. Right? right. So, you know. That's right. The 602 Club. When we're talking about the idea of context in history, I think this is the biggest issue that I see in this film. Um, and, and with the, the Force Awakens too, and you put them together because they're going to make a trilogy, is look, writing 101, if you don't know the past and the future of your characters, you absolutely 100% cannot write their present. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of those shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. So yeah, if you're an Apple user, make sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. And uh, that's on your iPhone, your iPad or Apple TV or even the desktop iTunes app and get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And you know what? It'd be really great. I mean, like really, really great if you could leave a star review along with a written review with that. And then, you know, we'll give you credit on the show. Even if you gave us a bad review, we'll give you credit for a bad review and then call you out on that. No, but just give us a review. (laughs) It really helps people to find the show. And if you're not an Apple user, well, we got you covered because you can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, most of the third-party apps you can find us there. Or you can even stream us and download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. We really appreciate any help you could provide. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and... You know, there's many ways you can do that. And one is in the larger conversation on the Babel conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that from our form on our website. It's at trek.fm slash contact. And when you go there, you will select Literary Treks as the show, and that email will then come right to us. And you can also find Trek FM and Literary Treks on Twitter at the Twitter handle of at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. For Literary Treks, we also have a Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of the books we have covered in previous, previous shows, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. 
And of course, there are always great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to take some time to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network, and for being associate producers for Literary Treks. Now, Bruce, when you're not carefully plotting your way through Klingon society to attain the vaunted rank of Thought Admiral, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on level five on the red square with a disc, and I'm fighting Klingons. Or you can (laughs) find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on Live from the Edge, now that Discovery is back on for the rest of the season, and along with uh, Brandy Jackala, and we talk Monday night after the Sunday premiere of a new episode of Discovery, and we do that at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific time, live, so check that out, and then it becomes part of the podcast feed for The Edge. And then I uh, talk Star Wars, especially The Last Jedi, on the Star Wars Report podcast, and you can find that on podcasting apps or at StarWarsReport.com. And of course, I'm in the Babel Conference, as always. It occurs to me that you should be thought Admiral underscore Rex. Ah, maybe I'll change that. (laughs) I've been wanting to change my handle, but I keep talking about my handle. I feel like, you know, it'll just confuse people. But anyway, so Dan, when you're not in the Black Fleet as a dead Klingon still fighting on your ship and trying to win the day thousands and thousands and thousands of times, where can people find you? <laughs> well, luckily my ship in the back in the black fleet still has Wi-Fi access. So you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K E R T R A T S. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash productions, where I talk about a lot of things in science fiction, but mostly Star Trek. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions, and, of course, in the Babel Conference, talking about, you guessed it, Star Trek. Because what greater thing is there? Well, there's... No, I'm kidding. No, I can't think of anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time... Live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.